For those of you who have been listening as episodes come out, I'm sorry it took me so long to do this one. I've had a busy couple of months, but also this episode is about the place where I live. And it turns out it's just harder to think about this when I'm talking about my home. Every detail seems important. Right now I'm standing high in the Berkeley Hills. It's later afternoon, and so the fog is starting to roll in. I can see the hills rolling down in front of me, the streets and neighborhoods reaching down toward the water. In the bay itself, there are ships waiting to come into the port of Oakland. I can see the cranes from the port, the buildings from downtown Oakland. Farther to the south, beyond what I can see, are San Jose and Silicon Valley. Starting down at the waterfront, right in front of me, the Bay Bridge hopscotches across the San Francisco Bay, touching down briefly on Treasure Island before it connects to the city. Farther in the distance, I can see San Francisco itself and Marin, the almost touching northern and southern peninsulas that make up the other side of the bay. The gap between them is called the Golden Gate, which is where the bridge gets its name. It extends from San Francisco to Marin, almost a mile and three quarters long, 220 feet above the water where the bay meets the Pacific Ocean. There are a lot of beautiful places on Earth, but this is the one I call home, and I love it. I've spent the past few weeks researching both the past and the future in the Bay Area. I've been thinking about how a rapidly shifting world will cause changes to our physical landscape and environment, and also to each of us individually. In this episode, we're going to explore how climate change will alter the San Francisco Bay Area. You're listening to Future Imperfect. I'm Shane Carter. The San Francisco Bay is the westernmost of three interconnected bays. Water from the Central Valley flows west through the Delta, then into the Sassoon Bay, next the San Pablo Bay, and then finally into the San Francisco Bay on its way out to the ocean. In California's fourth climate change assessment, the San Francisco Bay Area includes the nine counties that ring these bays, from Sonoma County in the north to Solano and Contra Costa counties in the east to Santa Clara County in the south. 7.2 million people live here. That's about 18% of the state population and 30% of the state's economy. Many of the world's best-known tech companies are based here. Google, Apple, Tesla, Facebook, plus two major ports, three international airports, and a thriving wine industry. Like every other part of the state, this place where I live is going to be altered by climate change. Scientists project we'll experience more heat, bigger storms, and also longer droughts, more wildfire risk, sea level rise, and a related phenomenon called groundwater rise. Without a doubt, these changes will alter the day-to-day experience of living in the Bay Area, but the question is, how? I spoke with five young people living in this region, and through the lens of their lives, we can begin to make sense of our possible future. I asked them to introduce themselves and tell me something about where they live. We'll start with the best-known city in the region. My name is Zoriana Sand. I lived in San Francisco my whole life. I was born here at Kaiser. Yeah. How old are you? I'm 16. San Francisco was built on the land of the Yilamu, part of the Ramatush Ohlone community. Zoriana and I met at the big central branch of the San Francisco Public Library. In 1769, when a small group of Spaniards first arrived here, there was a Yilamu village named Sitlintlak, just a short walk away from where the library is now. Um, I think it's one of the prettiest places in America. I mean, there's a lot of like beautiful natural places, but um, if we're talking about cities, it's really pretty. It's a little bit expensive, um, and it's kind of becoming more techy, I guess, than it was before. But I really like living here. Like, I I wouldn't want to move anywhere else um, right now. Zoriana has seen significant social changes in San Francisco during her lifetime. But to understand the magnitude of climate change in context, it helps to expand our view, to think about this place on a bigger timescale. 
If you walk two miles north from the library, you hit Fisherman's Wharf, a touristy port area at the north end of the peninsula. You'll see Alcatraz Island straight ahead and, off to your left, the Golden Gate, which is where the bay opens on to the Pacific Ocean. That spot, spanned by the vivid orange bridge, is what people all over the world associate with San Francisco. It's hard to imagine when you're standing there, at the edge of the city, but the bay hasn't always been here. 13,000 years ago, the coastline extended out almost 30 miles to the west of where it is today, and sea level was about 230 feet lower than it is now. Back then, a person standing at Fisherman's Wharf would have been on a hillside, looking out over a valley. They would have seen a massive river coming down from the northeast, carrying rain and snowmelt from far northern California and many parts of the Sierras. Streams flowed into the river from all across the valley, from today's Napa and Sonoma, from the Oakland and Berkeley Hills, from Marin, from San Jose. The river passed right in front of today's Fisherman's Wharf and went through a break in the hills, what later became the Golden Gate, and across the coastal plain out to the sea. As the last glaciation ended, sea levels began to rise. The rate wasn't steady. Sometimes it slowed down for hundreds of years at a time. Other times, sea level in the Bay Area rose more than two feet in a century. That is slower than our current climate change experience, but fast enough that an observant person would have noticed the difference in a single lifetime. By 7,000 years ago, that is 5,000 BCE, a person standing at Fisherman's Wharf would still have seen the river flowing in from the northeast, but they'd be looking out at a giant tidal estuary instead of a valley, acres of marshy land where the fresh water from the river mixed with seawater that rose and lowered with the tides. The coastal plain to the west was gone, disappeared under the waters of the ocean, and the mouth of the river was right around the Golden Gate. The water kept rising, but more slowly than before. By 2,000 years ago, right around the height of the Roman Empire, the bay was the size it is today. The ancestors of modern indigenous Californians were here throughout that whole process. Generation after generation, they experienced the formation of the bay. 250 years ago, when Spaniards first arrived here, the Bay Area was home to about 20,000 people. The people who lived here tended it in ways that increased the natural abundance of the land. And so, north of the Aztec Empire, this was the most densely populated part of the continent. Today, about 875,000 people live in the city of San Francisco alone, including over 6,000 people from different indigenous communities from across the continent. San Francisco is the fourth largest city in the state. Human society here has changed, obviously, but the beautiful landscape and the gentle weather still invite inhabitants to spend time outside, to wander. Me and my friends really like to explore the city and go to different um, shops and look at stuff. We spend a lot of time just kind of hanging out in groups in different places. About 20 miles north of San Francisco, across the Golden Gate Bridge, I spoke to a young woman who lives in the city of San Rafael, a midpoint where the ancestral lands of the Ramaytush Ohlone meet those of the coastal Miwok. Hi, my name is Nadine. I live in Moen County, California, and um, I am 15 years old. I'm a sophomore. I dance. I do ballet and contemporary dance, and... Um, like watching Netflix just like every other teenager. San Rafael is a city of about 60,000 people in Marin County. Like San Francisco, this place once looked out over that ancient valley, but today it sits on the water, right where the San Francisco Bay meets the San Pablo Bay. The city has shopping and residential areas, but also natural areas and hiking trails. Plus, the western half of Marin County is all parks and open space. Dadeen's favorite place is Mere Woods. You can go on a hike there, and it's, like, nice and cool because it's, like, all in the trees and stuff and really quiet. How big are the trees? Oh, they're gigantic. They're redwood trees, so they're, like, super-duper tall. Mere Woods is an old-growth coast redwood forest. Many of the trees there are over 600 years old, and the oldest is 1,200 years the biggest tree in Mirror Woods is 258 feet tall, which is about the height of an 18-story building. 
If you keep heading north another 45 miles along the 101, you cross through the ancestral lands of the coastal Miwok to the home of the southern Pomo people in the Russian River Valley. This is Sonoma County, wine country today. My name is Michaela. I am 17 and I live in Windsor, California. I am on my high school's dance team. I am actually a part of a club at my high school called Committee for Change, which is a club geared towards bettering our local uh, climate change like problem and fixing things locally in our community, and especially at our high school. With about half the population of San Rafael, Windsor has lots of suburban residential neighborhoods, plus a downtown area called the Windsor Town Green. Michaela's favorite place is also a reflection of where she lives. There is this one location that uh, me and my friends always go to. It's like kind of on a back road um, in this area that is probably the more like agriculturally focused area of town and it has a bunch of vineyards and it's just kind of this like random road that you go down and you can pull into this area that's like a, we call it a back in and so it's like been famously named back in and um that's just kind of where we like hang out centralized with all of our friends and it's been kind of like a famously named spot and I don't know it's just I feel like I'll bring my like kids there one day and be like this is where me and my friends hung out like it's just that spot you know now we go back down the 101 east across the bay about 75 miles to the southeast into the east bay Much of this side of the bay, including the spot where my home stands, is the ancestral land of the Chochenyo-speaking Ohlone people. The Chochenyo name for this East Bay region is Huchin. The city of Oakland is located here. My name is Isha. I'm 17, and I am born, raised, and educated in Oakland, California. Um, I am a young Black and Jewish girl, and I fight for social justice and equity. If you listen to the episode on Taking Action, you may remember Isha, one of the co-founders of the climate justice organization, Youth vs. Apocalypse. Oakland anchors the eastern side of the Bay Bridge, across the water from San Francisco. With about 433,000 people, it features a busy port, industrial areas, and also forested hills. There are a wide range of neighborhoods. Oakland is the most diverse city in America. Um, And I think that really explains it pretty well when you just say that. My Oakland is art, is beauty, is diversity, is sideshows, is Mag Dre, is parties, is taco trucks, is friendship, and this this really beautiful open-mindedness and willingness to learn and to be paradox. At the beginning of the episode, I described the view standing at the top of the Berkeley Hills, looking out to the west. But if you turn the other way, look east, inland instead, you see a whole different landscape. This is also the ancestral land of the Chochenyo-speaking Ohlone, but instead of water, there are rolling hills in every direction. It's pretty common for summer temperatures here to be 10 or 20 degrees warmer than along the coast in Oakland and Berkeley. About 35 miles east of Oakland is the city of Livermore. My name is Rude. I live in Livermore, California, and I am 16 years old. Livermore is home to around 90,000 people, and it's probably what you think of when you imagine an idealized suburbia. Residential neighborhoods, areas for shopping, public pools and tennis courts. Like Windsor, Livermore is also a wine-growing region, so add some vineyards to your mental image. There are a lot of science and technology businesses and organizations in Livermore. Rade's interests fit right in with the STEM focus of his city and its proximity to Silicon Valley. Uh, I'm really interested in um, math and physics. I'm also very interested in um, computer science and programming. I'm the president of the cybersecurity club at our high school. Um, Additionally, I play tennis for our varsity men's team at Granada High School. You're currently listening to the 12th episode of this podcast, but Rade was actually one of the first people I interviewed. It was a few months before the start of the pandemic. Do you have a favorite place in town? I would probably say my high school. Why? 
um, I love my high school. I love my friends. It's really fun. I love all my classes, my teachers, all the activities going on. And um, yeah. In March 2020, Riday's school moved online and stayed that way until March of the following year, when students went back in person just two days a week. A change in our biological environment, the introduction of a virus, upended how we interacted together and shared spaces. Our buildings and modes of transportation worked under one set of conditions, but weren't flexible enough for us to respond to this significant change. So we had to radically alter how we lived our lives. There is a lesson here. And before I get into climate change projections for the Bay Area, I want to take a detour to consider how we think about the future. Here are Nadine and Zoriana. Pay attention to what they're saying and what they're not saying about the future. I feel like I always think of it in terms of like how I live now, like that will be like how it's always, but I know that's not true. My friend, her uncle, I think was like, I don't want to have children because I don't want to have a kid growing up in how the world today. So I feel like I kind of have that fear too, even though like I'm 15 and everything, but like, do I want a child that's gonna have to grow up with like all these like damages to the environment and perhaps living in such a world? You look tense. Yeah, it's, it's hard for me to kind of like describe exactly what it is because it's so many things. It takes so many shapes and there's so many aspects to it and like so many different kinds of people are affected in different ways because whenever you think about climate change it always seems like there's going to be one day where everything explodes and everyone's screaming but it's a slow horrible process it just kind of makes life a little bit worse every day as it gets worse when Rede told me how much he loved his school, of course, we had no idea what was about to happen, how that school was about to change for him. Nadine and Zoriana, on the other hand, know greenhouse gas emissions are still increasing. They know climate changes are already happening. And they're worried about, but don't actually know, how their lives will change, what they and we are going to lose. Nadine said she always thinks of the future in terms of how she lives now even though she knows it won't always be that way. And I think that's normal. It is extremely difficult to imagine something beyond your own context. Like, listen to this. Here's her day again. We're talking about smoke from wildfires. Right now we have, like, our tennis schedule is heavily based around, like, rain. If it rains one day, we'll cancel a match, we'll reschedule it. I could definitely see, like, oh, it's smoky today. You know, air, air pollutant is, you know pollution levels are high today, we have to reschedule. So just becoming, you know, a thing you accept, like rain, there's going to be rain. And if it's, if the climate plays out that way, you know, it'll be like, oh, the pollutant levels are high today. So match rescheduled. Yeah. And what do you think your school will do? I, I don't know. I mean, I think if, if, you know, there's probably a limit for the pollution level for when we could go to school. Um, we'd probably be missing a good amount of school unless we like, you know, make it an indoor school, which I don't see happening. Um, I don't know. That would be kind of hard if, you know, you just couldn't go to school and you had no other option. I don't, I don't know how that would work out. Now, after COVID, moving school online on extra smoky days seems like an obvious solution. I'm not saying it's the best answer, just that it's easily imaginable. But in the fall of 2019, it wasn't. In that conversation, neither of us imagined a real adaptation, good or bad, to increasing wildfire and smoke. Instead, we talked about loss. It's just hard to envision significant changes to our lives before they happen. That means when you hear about projected climate change effects, it's easy to get stuck thinking about the loss of your current way of life, but very challenging to imagine a good future where our world might look a little or a lot different. So as you listen to the rest of the episode, keep that challenge in mind. Remember that it's hard to imagine ways your local community can plan for climate changes and reduce the impact of those changes on people's day-to-day -day lives. But just because it's hard to imagine doesn't mean it's impossible to do.
Earlier, I mentioned several ways climate change is expected to affect the Bay Area. They are all important, but I'm going to focus on only four of them. Heat, wildfire risk, sea level rise, and, relatedly, groundwater rise. Part one, let's start with heat. So tell me about the heat wave this past summer and how, if at all, that changed your behavior. Uh, it sucked. Um, I remember it was in the middle of summer and I had invited my friend over and we were planning on going outside and doing all this stuff and maybe even going to the beach because it was super hot and we thought, wow, this is perfect. But we couldn't even get outside of the house because it was so hot and we just ended up falling asleep. <laughs> and I remember just how happy I was when the heat wave was over. It was horrible. Do you have air conditioning? My air conditioning stopped working. Zoriana's 2019 experience, three days of temperatures in the high 90s, wasn't extreme by some standards, but it was still historically unusual weather for this part of the coast. For her, a healthy young person who had the option to stay indoors, the situation was just uncomfortable. But increasing heat, which is caused by our high greenhouse gas emissions, is the most immediately dangerous climate change effect we're facing around the world, in the sense that heat itself can be deadly. A couple years earlier, in the fall of 2017, the thermometer hit 106 degrees in San Francisco. Six San Francisco residents died from that, and 38 were hospitalized due to heat-related illness. Then, the heat dome that extended from Canada down into California in the summer of 2021 reached over 120 degrees in some places and led to the deaths of about 1,200 people between the U.S. and Canada. Our Bay Area buildings, our infrastructure, our recreation, our work practices, all of them are suited to our historically mild coastal temperatures. But now, all parts of the Bay Area are projected to get hotter, and we have to prepare. So how much hotter are we talking about? In a good scenario, where we start rapidly reducing our emissions right now, the average temperature in the Bay Area is projected to increase 4.2 degrees Fahrenheit by 2100. However, if we continue our current behavior, scientists project an increase of 7.2 degrees. But what does that mean? Climate projections do not give us specific daily weather predictions. But by comparing current averages to projected future averages, we can get some idea of how our lives may change. For me, it helps to think about this in terms of two questions. First, how hot will it get on the hottest day of the year? And second, how many hot days will we experience each year? Let's start with that question about the hottest day of the year. In the 30 years from 1976 to 2005, the hottest day of the year in San Francisco and nearby parts of the Pacific coast averaged around 86 degrees. Some years it was higher than 86 and some lower. Some neighborhoods were a little warmer or a little cooler, but the average for that region was 86. If you lived farther from the coast in eastern Contra Costa or Napa counties, it was a lot different. The hottest day of the year averaged around 106 degrees, so being near the ocean makes a big difference. Compare that past average to the last 30 years of this century coming up from 2070 to 2100. In a good scenario, where we reduce our CO2 emissions a lot, San Francisco's average hottest day of the year is projected to be around 92, while people living in the East would see an average annual high of about 110. But if we don't reduce our emissions, the average hottest day of the year in San Francisco is projected to rise to 100 degrees in the last 30 years of this century. Meanwhile, parts of Sonoma, Napa, and Contra Costa counties could see average annual highs around 116. And, as I always say, it's important to remember that the average is not necessarily what you'll experience. It could be slightly higher or slightly lower in any given year. 
Then there's the question of how many hot days we'll have each year. So remember that from 76 to 2005, the average hottest day of the year in San Francisco was 86 degrees. There were only a handful of days each year when it got that hot or hotter. By 2050, climatologists project that people living in San Francisco will experience between 15 and 40 additional days each year where the temperature is over 85 degrees. By 2100, they project up to 90 additional days over 85 degrees. Inland areas will experience even more heat. That number of days suggests heat waves multiple days in a row where the temperature stays dangerously high and our bodies experience increasing stress as we struggle to cool down. Combined with changes in precipitation and possibly fog, this increased heat will alter our natural landscapes. To take a really vivid example, consider Nadine's favorite place, Mirror Woods. The coast redwoods there may not survive. Increased heat will also change how we interact with our environment throughout the year, but especially during extreme heat waves. Being exposed to heat can affect our emotional and physical health, leading to dehydration and added stress, but also increased respiratory illness, heat stroke, and, as I mentioned before, death. Our vulnerability to heat partly depends on our stage in life. Children, older people, and pregnant women are more affected by heat. But also, historical inequalities mean that some communities are more vulnerable than others. Low-income communities of color and indigenous communities will be hit the hardest and will be hit first and are already. It's important to recognize that when talking about climate change and teaching about climate change, that that is a very important and real piece of it. Treeless urban areas, which are often historically segregated black and brown neighborhoods, they already heat up more than neighborhoods with shade trees and nice parks. Some people have air conditioning and can afford to run it when temperatures rise, while others don't have it and can't afford to get it. These inequalities and others mean that people across communities will have unequal experiences of heat. So what can we do about this? At the global level, we can decrease our greenhouse gas emissions, which will make increases in heat less extreme and easier to adapt to. This is the most important and the most equitable thing we can do. And then locally, we can reduce urban heat by improving our parks, by planting trees, by changing the color of the roofs of our buildings and even our pavement, just to give a few examples. We can create cool public spaces where people can shelter during intense heat. And if we focus on the hottest, most vulnerable neighborhoods first, we will actually be making our society more equitable than it is right now. If you want to learn more about what you can do in your own community, check out the resources on the Future Imperfect webpage. I've included a link to a guide by heat experts Lad Keith and Sarah Miro that explains all kinds of strategies local governments can adopt to reduce urban heat and plan for heat waves. Part 2. Fire has always been a part of California's ecosystem, and indigenous Californians used regular, intentional burning as a way to promote food production and maintain healthy ecosystems. Fire encouraged the growth of plants they used for food and tools. It created meadows that attracted deer and elk for hunting. It generated smoke that kept rivers cool during salmon runs. But now, after a hundred years of strict fire suppression policies, our wildlands are filled with flammable brush. Our forest management and our settlement patterns have combined with higher temperatures, deepening drought years, and bigger winter storms to create more frequent and much larger wildfires. In 2018, the campfire killed 85 people and burned over 150,000 acres in the northern part of the state. The town of Paradise was destroyed, and smoke from the fire extended across the state, including into the Bay Area. Here's Zoriana. It was crazy how normal it felt because... I was really thinking about this a lot when I, um, during that time. Like, if I was little and I imagined that as my future, I would be so freaked out. But I remember wearing the mask just kind of normally and looking outside and seeing the sky was orange at noon. Um, and it just felt, like, normal. Like, oh, yeah, this is my life now, I guess. It didn't feel, like, shock. 
Cal Fire has a list of California's 20 largest wildfires ever recorded, and 10 of those have happened in the last three years, since I started doing the interviews for this podcast. And wildfire is projected to increase in many parts of California, directly endangering communities. Smoke from wildfires in more heavily forested parts of the state will worsen air quality in other regions. The smoke, which often includes burned toxic chemicals, affects our health and how we go about our day-to-day lives. Between any two classes, you're pretty much guaranteed to have to step out. Um, We usually, unless there's a club in a specific room, we usually eat lunch outside as well. And our breaks are actually um, 10 minutes long. So we leave a classroom, we spend about, you know, seven or eight minutes outside before we get to another class. Last year, when the campfire smoke was coming down, did that affect your school at all? Yes, we had to miss one day, which was the day right before Thanksgiving break. And we just got lucky that it happened right around Thanksgiving break. So we only had to miss a day of school. But I'll I'll always remember, you know, that one or two days where um, we went to school um, with the fire going on. It was, you know, absurdly smoky. Um, I think I even remember, you know, crying a few times, not crying, but my eyes got very watery because of, you know, the the chemicals in the air. Climate scientists also project increased wildfire risk within the Bay Area itself, especially in less urbanized places. Michaela lives in an area that saw three major fires in four years. I guess my first real experience of the fire season was 2017. um, And that was when my neighboring town, Santa Rosa, uh, it got like mo- many neighborhoods and many areas were like burnt to the ground um, with a fire that happened and it didn't get to Windsor personally. So like I didn't have to get evacuated, but since it was a neighboring town and I go there all the time and I know like schools, it was still, it affected everyone a lot. Nadine from San Rafael also remembers the 2017 Tubbs fire. For the Sonoma one two years ago, we had to, in the morning usually, we because it was like an open school so um we could like stand outside in like the open air and whatever so they all like filed us into the gym and we weren't allowed to eat outside we had to eat in classrooms and that's what they did the other time and also like my dance then was canceled too i interviewed nadine in san rafael on october 26 2019 while we were remembering one fire we were waiting for news of another one Actually, they're deciding today if they want to shut down the power for our county for, I think it's like 36 hours. So that affects the individual. We're not going to have power if they decide that. And that's because of how dry it is and our drought and if the electricity could spark a fire. Nadine was talking about a public safety power shutoff, a PSPS, in which the power company shuts off electricity to different areas to keep power lines from sparking fires under hot, windy conditions. With our current infrastructure, what that means is heat waves and fire danger go hand in hand. These PSPSs can cut power to thousands of people for multiple days in a row. At the same time Nadine and I were talking in San Rafael, Michaela and her family were being evacuated from their home in Windsor. In the spring of 2020, when I interviewed Michaela, she reflected back on that same day. And it was just pretty terrifying. We didn't think we were going to have to get evacuated. And then all of a sudden, like 10 minutes later, it was like everyone was running out of their house. And so like my family and I ended up going to San Francisco and I ended up staying out of my house for like two weeks or something. Um, and I had to stay in hotels and it was just really scary. And it was it was hard knowing that like your house could get burnt down to the ground. Like that's where all your belongings are, you know, and materialistic items shouldn't really mean like that much, but they do, you know, and it's like, it's, it's the memories in the house and stuff like that. And so you never really realize how much you care about it until it's threatened to be burnt down to the ground. So like when you were told you had to evacuate and you have to run around and, and leave, like, how did you choose what to take with you? I love like my clothes. Like I'm a super, I'm super into like fashion. So I love my clothes. So that's the hardest part is like choosing what clothes to take. But I kind of just like grab a bunch of those, however many shirts and I kind of just throw them in. Um, But I also have like boxes of like items that I really like are special to me, I guess. So like, it's kind of nice to have those in a box because I just take the box, put it in my (laughs) suitcase or whatever I'm taking. But 
I, I kind of just tried to fit wherever I could that I like knew I would want in the future that I knew would be like important to me. But it's really, really hard because whatever you don't take, you're like, oh, shoot, if that burns, I'm going to be so sad. Like, <laughs> And you said there was a lot of traffic on the way out. Were you anxious in the car because of the traffic? Yeah, and I had to... I didn't want to leave my car there because I was like, I don't want my car to burn because I'm taking this to college. So um, I ended up like driving by myself and then my mom and my brother took my mom's car and then my dad took his car. So it was like we were all in different cars and I was like trying to follow my mom. So it was like kind of stressful because I was by myself like in tons of traffic and my parents were like not letting me take it either they were like you're not gonna take it you're gonna come with us and I was like guys this is my car Michaela worried that fires might become even more frequent in her area the fact that we could have like one in the beginning of the year or in the middle and then one like towards the end of the year it just like to have that multiple times in a year would be awful and just really hard. And I think it would be hard on the community and the economy as well. In August of 2020, just a couple months after I spoke with her and less than a year after her family was evacuated from their home, Michaela's town of Windsor was once again threatened by fire. The Willoughby Fire was burning off to the west and Cal Fire issued a warning that incoming thunderstorms might bring it into her town. Luckily for them, that's not what happened this time. Wildfire affects us in lots of ways. Death, injury, and emotional trauma from the fire itself, respiratory illness and asthma from exposure to smoke and burning toxic chemicals, but also a loss of jobs and homes and loss of community itself. Climate emergencies really separate those who can um, afford protection from those who can't, and I feel like those who can't afford protection are really going to suffer from it because there's a lot of things that are really expensive like insurance if there's a wildfire and your house gets burnt down there's going to be those who just get the bare minimum and those who can afford to rebuild and I feel like that's going to be very visible in San Francisco already there's a lot of segregation in San Francisco with the homeless and those who can afford to live here and I think that's just going to become more apparent. According to the Public Policy Institute of California, the Bay Area is one of the most economically unequal places in the United States. Families in the top 10% of the income scale here earn more than 12 times as much as families in the bottom 10%. And that inequality is growing. If you live here or have visited, you know one of the ways this is most visible is the lack of affordable housing. There are currently more than 35,000 unhoused people and people living in shelters in the Bay Area. Climate change is related to the housing crisis in two ways. Being unhoused makes people extremely vulnerable to things like heat and bad air quality. And at the same time, fires and other climate change effects have the potential to make the housing situation itself worse. The 2017 Tubbs fire, the first fire Michaela mentioned, destroyed 5% of the housing in her neighboring town of Santa Rosa. Many of those who lost housing could not find affordable alternatives in the area, meaning people were separated from their neighbors and friends at exactly the moment when those social ties were most important for them. Our response to the wildfire problem needs to have two parts, just like with heat. First, do what we can to reduce the likelihood of wildfire causing death and destruction. This means better forest management, city planning to limit building in natural areas, building codes to make buildings more fire resistant, and residents can maintain defensible space around their homes to lower the risk of them burning. And then second, when fire does happen, reduce its impact on people's lives. So, for example, microgrids to maintain reliable electricity, better access to fire insurance, and, last but not least, more affordable housing so everyone has shelter from extreme weather and poor air quality. There is a lot more to say about this, including more good stuff. 
Once I finish the last two regional episodes about the Sacramento area and the North Coast, I'll do one on fire. Now we're at part three, sea level rise and groundwater rise. Sea level rise is the first thing a lot of people think about when it comes to climate change, and it's certainly top of mind around the Bay. Some people along the California coast are already seeing their homes threatened by coastal erosion and sea level rise. None of the young people I interviewed experienced this, though Michaela did have a serious flood in her town. When I was in middle school, I think like seventh or eighth grade, my whole school got flooded out. Um, and or basically my whole, t- whole town. I remember the town next to us, people were literally taking canoes to like the grocery stores. So it was it was a pretty bad flood. And we were out of school for about like a week and a half. That flood was caused by an intense winter storm something we can expect more of due to climate change. But I want to focus instead on the kind of flooding that may be caused by sea level rise. In the Bay Area, climate scientists project 7 to 15 inches of sea level rise by 2050, and 25 to 46 inches, that's 2 to 4 feet, by 2100, with those higher numbers happening if we continue to emit huge amounts of greenhouse gases. Depending on what happens to the Antarctic ice sheets, there is some remote chance sea level rise could reach almost 9 feet by 2100. Regardless of where sea level is by the end of the century, it will keep rising after 2100. How much will depend on our continuing carbon emissions. If you listened to the San Diego episode, you know that the effects of sea level rise can be complicated. Tides, storm surges, and the coastal landscape all affect the amount of flooding places will experience. Plus, in some parts of the Bay Area, the land is sinking at the same time the sea is rising, amplifying the effects of sea level rise. It's hard to picture what this could mean in specific terms, so I'm going to work with an example. I asked Isha about her favorite way to spend a day in Oakland. So I would... We'll get with all my friends and get a lot of like different picnic blankets and tapestries and all the cute stuff, you know, get dressed up, do my hair, put on my little bamboo earrings, <laughs> and then I would go to Lake Merritt. Let me situate you. Lake Merritt is in the middle of Oakland. Originally, this was a tidal estuary. Creeks flowed down from the Oakland Hills into a low-lying marshy area. Ocean water flowed in and out of the marsh each day as the tide rose and fell. Then, in 1870, the city of Oakland partially dammed it and turned it into a lake and a wildlife refuge. The water level still rises and falls with the tides. Around the time Isha was born, the city began a project to rebuild the park that rings the entire lake, and now it's a very popular weekend destination. Thousands of people walk there, picnic, play music, and hang out with friends. And then I would go to Lake Merritt and I would get some tacos from the from Tacos Mi Rancho, which is the green truck on First Ave and International. And I would sit at the lake with my friends and listen to music and talk and chill and stay there until the sunset. Oh, my God. During the sunset, Lake Merritt is so beautiful. That's my like favorite spot because you got the taco truck and you got the scenery. It's great. So let's say it's 2050, and just for the sake of this example, we'll imagine that a lot of Bay Area infrastructure is the same as it is today. No adaptations, no major improvements. Isha is in her mid-40s. Sea levels have risen just over a foot. And let's say there was recently an extremely heavy winter rainstorm, another projected climate change effect. Now it's morning. High tide coincides with the morning rush hour. Lake Merritt itself has not flooded the surrounding park, although the water level in the lake would be quite high. But a few miles away, the entrance to the Bay Bridge, used by a quarter million people each day, is flooded. So are the huge East Bay sewage treatment plant and parts of Isha's West Oakland neighborhood. Sewers back up all over town. Sixty miles to the east, the Delta is also flooded, endangering California's highly engineered state water system. When you find your, do you ever find yourself sitting at the lake having that moment and thinking about how that is going to change as climate changes? You know, the last night I was, I, this seems off track, but I promise I'll answer your question. Last night I was 
in my mom's room and me and my little sister and her were going through her high school yearbooks. And, you know, I'm a senior in high school myself. And so I'm kind of experiencing the loss of my senior year. Um, Really second semester is like the best part of senior year and missing out on that, not getting to do um, my senior trip or prom, probably having a virtual graduation. Isha was in the class of 2020, the first pandemic year. And I was just sitting looking through her yearbooks and I was like, wow, like she won my mom, probably because she was also a middle-class white lady, but had the privilege of, and also because she lived in this era of not really having to worry about her future like that in the way that my generation does that we don't when we're planning for our future there's always there always has to be this reality in the back of our minds that we might not actually have a place on this planet or that if we do we might be thinking about survival instead of thriving and living happy lives because we're going to have to be fighting hurricanes and droughts and displacement and disease and so many very apocalyptic things that we're starting to get a taste of today. I described here what it would be like if just over one foot of sea level rise happened and we did not adapt our infrastructure. But why should we assume that kind of failure? For several years now, Bay Area governments have been working together on something called Plan Bay Area. Their most recent plan, called Plan Bay Area 2050, looks at the many ways climate change is projected to affect the region and identifies challenges and strategies that can be adopted by all kinds of government agencies, from cities to transit agencies to wastewater treatment. One part of their planning process included the Resilient by Design Bay Area Challenge back in 2018. And if you need some inspiration to help you imagine what a good future might look like, I suggest looking at some of their ideas. The challenge invited 10 teams to select at-risk sites around the Bay Area and then develop proposals for ways to address sea level rise with an eye toward climate and environmental justice. In other words, the solutions they proposed had to do more than narrowly address sea level rise. They needed to imagine a future that would be more equitable and more sustainable than our current world. The projects they designed are pretty fantastic. And now, four years after the end of the challenge, several of them are actually being built. I am not saying that our sea level rise problems are solved, but planning and community engagement are happening. In a best case scenario future where we responded to climate change with these kinds of solutions, we wouldn't just be limping along, reeling from climate crisis. We would have a better world or at least a better region than we do now. And that type of creative thinking is important because sea level rise is not the only water related issue we're facing. I talked about this with Nancy Freitas, my collaborator on this podcast. She's a graduate student studying climate science at UC Berkeley. She listened to my interviews with young people, and then we discussed them. I brought my perspective from teaching history and social studies, and she brought a scientist's view, and very importantly, answered questions that came up. If you want to learn more about Nancy and her work, you should listen to the first episode called What is Climate Change? Nancy told me about something called Groundwater Rise. So to to preface this, Christina Hill does research on groundwater levels rising due to sea level rise. So we have groundwater um, in the Bay Area that sits just below the surface in these aquifers that are, they're not confined by, by overlying ground. And so when sea levels rise, seawater is denser than freshwater. So it sits below the freshwater that sea level can actually push up the groundwater underneath cities. And so we're thinking about sea level rise and that kind of encroaching from the margins of where the sea meets the land. But she's thinking, okay, there's this other effect that's going to happen where groundwater that sits below us in our cities is going to be pushed up. And we're not talking about that. Wow. Yeah. Um, So I'm going to read a quote from her. 
Nancy is reading from a 2019 article about Hill's work, written by Grace Mitchell-Tada. The result of this will be that in places like Oakland, flooding will occur not just at the shoreline, but inland, in areas once considered safe from sea level rise, including the Oakland Coliseum and Jones Avenue, where Hill and her students stood more than a mile from San Leandro Bay. In fact, she added, rising groundwater menaces nearly the entire band of low-lying land around San Francisco Bay, as well as many other coastal parts of the U.S. Rising groundwater can do damage in a lot of different ways. It can saturate parks and kill plants. It can push up through drains into basements and bathrooms, damage infrastructure and building foundations, flood drainage systems, flood highways, airport runways. It can cause leaks at sewage treatment plants. Rising groundwater also brings our past pollution back to haunt us. Toxic industrial chemicals that leach down into the soil over the past several decades will get pushed back up above ground as the water rises. I'm talking about things like arsenic, lead, benzene, PCBs, gasoline from former gas stations. And as if that weren't enough, it can also increase danger during earthquakes because of liquefaction. Water-saturated land basically acts like liquid as it shakes, worsening the effects of the earthquake. And like other climate change effects, rising groundwater is going to affect people differently depending on where they live. Here's Nancy reading from a different part of the same article. She adds that East Oakland is already among the top 5% of polluted California zip codes. The mostly low-income, primarily non-white residents who live there have relatively high rates of chronic disease. Life expectancy for African Americans in the Oakland Flats can be up to 14 years less than in the hills. And now, these already beleaguered communities face the prospect of contaminants welling up from underneath their feet. That's horrifying. So, it is horrifying, and it is something that we need to be talking about. Um, That's new for me. This sounds bad, and it definitely is. But there's also something good here if you pay attention to the details. Research on the phenomenon of groundwater rise only began 10 years ago, in 2012, when a researcher named Kolio Rotzal in Hawaii noticed that the water levels in freshwater wells were affected by wave action in the ocean. Now, only 10 years later, groundwater rise is already incorporated into the Our Coast, Our Future tool that cities up and down the California coast use in their sea level rise planning. In other words, scientists moved at top speed to do this research and make it publicly available in an easily understandable form. And with that speed, they've given community activists and local governments time to understand the problem and craft solutions. I put a link to the Our Coast, Our Future tool on the Future Imperfect webpage. Open it up, click on the hazard map, and then look under Scenario Topic to see groundwater rise. Using the hazard map, you can see how different amounts of sea level rise are projected to affect groundwater in coastal areas. Places where groundwater is projected to be emergent, that is, pushing up to puddle above ground, those places are marked in red. The map is a planning tool, but also a powerful cautionary tale. It says, here is what will happen if you don't prepare. I set it to 50 centimeters of sea level rise, about a foot and a half, and looked at Isha's favorite spot, the park around Lake Merritt. Much of it is red, suggesting persistent puddled water in places where people currently gather to enjoy the lake and picnic with friends. The street where the taco truck parks is projected to be wet even on sunny days. In many parts of West Oakland, Isha's neighborhood, water mixed with toxic chemicals could push up out of drains on the street and into people's basements. You know, when I sit in my favorite outdoor places, I really feel like I have to hold on to it a little bit more because it might not be there. And my children and their children might not be able to experience the outdoors in the way that I'm getting a chance to. And also just as a person who is fighting, not even just for 
the environment. Of course, I'm fighting for the environment and for climate, but also to really create a world in which we are living a lifestyle that is sustainable, which means that we dismantle white supremacy and we prioritize equity. And so when I'm looking at the scenery, I feel like I'm looking at what I am fighting to protect this moment and also the actual physical things that are existing there. And it's kind of hard to grasp what we're losing or what we're risking losing because we have no idea. No one has ever experienced this before in human history. At the beginning of the episode, I mentioned that indigenous people lived in this region well over 10,000 years ago, back before the bay existed. Any archaeological evidence of their presence in that original river valley or along the coastal plain is now lost, covered over as sea levels rose and the bay formed. But more recent evidence persisted. In the early 1900s, a UC Berkeley archaeologist named Nels Nelson mapped 425 sites called shell mounds around the bay. According to Nelson's map, the place where Isha gathered with friends at the edge of Lake Merritt is close to where shell mound 314A used to stand. Shell mounds were human-made hills formed from a compact mix of mostly shells, soil, and sand. They ranged from 30 to 600 feet in diameter and were up to 30 feet tall. That's the footprint of a big box store, like an Ikea or a Costco. The biggest ones were long ovals running parallel to the coast, often situated at a place where a creek flowed into the bay. They would have been easily visible to people fishing or traveling across the bay in Thule boats. Others were farther inland, but also usually along creeks and rivers. The oldest known shell mound was in West Berkeley. I say oldest known because it's possible older mounds are buried beneath the bay, eroded and covered by the rising waters. The bottom layers of the West Berkeley mound extend several feet below current sea level and date back over 5,000 years, which, for reference, is older than Egypt's pyramids. The giant pyramids at Giza, the ones that are best known, were constructed over just 85 years. By contrast, indigenous people here slowly built and used the biggest shell mounds over hundreds, even thousands of years. The mounds were central cultural sites where people conducted ceremonies, resided, prepared food, and buried their dead. Today, many of the known mound sites have been destroyed, covered over with shopping centers or parking lots. The mounds themselves were hauled away and used to fertilize gardens, build roads, even to surface tennis courts. Some of the artifacts and human remains from within them were taken to UC Berkeley's Hearst Museum, which created conflict with indigenous communities. Over the course of researching for this episode, I spent a lot of time thinking about what the bay might have been like back before the Spanish and then U.S. conquest, when 20,000 Ohlone people and coastal Miwok people lived here. Back then, the landscape was altered in ways that reflected their cultures, their knowledge and worldviews, whereas the current landscape shows the imprint of our modern settler cultures. We humans respond creatively to our environments, both altering them and building cultures in response to them. So, for example, in ancient Egypt, people's ways of life, their politics, their technology and infrastructure, their spiritual practices, developed partly in relation with the annual flooding of the Nile. What I keep thinking about is how local indigenous societies developed in relation with the much less predictable water here, with the formation of the bay with intense El Nino years with winter rains. I contacted UC Berkeley archaeologist Kent Lightfoot to ask him some questions about the mounds, and he told me that in the winter and spring, when the rivers and creeks were higher, some of the coastal mounds would have become temporary islands. People could have moved between the coast and different shell mounds on boats, taking advantage of bountiful seasonal resources in and around the bay. What strikes me when I imagine that past landscape is how perfectly suited the mounds were to a place with fluctuating water levels. What an elegant development they were 
in a changeable environment. Our challenges and the details of our modern industrial society are obviously very different. But the principle, that elegance, is something I think we should aspire to as we try to imagine our future. Thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about any of the topics I brought up in this episode, check out the Future Imperfect webpage at calgloboled.org. The next episode will be about the Sacramento Valley. Thanks to Nancy Freitas for her extensive guidance interpreting the science, and to Richard Duke, who composed and recorded the music. And if you visit the webpage, be sure to take a moment to look at the cover art by Sierra Claxton. Thank you.